0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people.
1: British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal
0: skies Watched your winding rivers as they blow around the bend To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 23rd, 2020, and this is episode 186.
2: I'm Scott DeLunderbohm.
0: And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have a special interview on air pollution and COVID-19 with the University of British Columbia's Dr. Michael Brower, something you recorded without me last Friday, and that patrons will have had a chance to listen to. But before we get into that, we'll be able to talk about transit funding and sick days, which have been the points of discussion in the last few days. First, though, we have to thank those who continue to help make the show possible. We're up to 95 contributors every month, thanks to our newest patrons, Warren and Jason. We're now at $292 a month US. So close to that $300 mark that I really just want to see us get over. Thanks to everyone who's sticking around. Uh, One of the bonuses we're looking at, and I don't have a specific threshold in mind yet, but we've just put up the transcript of our conversation with Dr. Brower at the website politicost.ca. If this is something that you think is helpful or good for us to do for accessibility, maybe chip in a bit more money per month so that we're able to cover our editing costs, cover the cost of the automated transcription service, which is actually only about 10 bucks a month, but also cover the costs of cleaning that up and getting it online. So go to patreon.com slash and help us out. And of course, for the duration of the crisis, we've made our patron Slack open to all listeners and supporters. Visit legandbootmedia.ca and fill out the form there. Uh, Apologies if it takes a couple days. We don't check it every day for new listeners, but I did see a couple more people who I just added this afternoon. And as always, Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning listeners to Politico, enter the offer code citizen for access to a special rate for a free 2-week trial of the newsletter. Go to politicstoday.news/free-trial. Let's jump into our roundup of the latest news. Let's start off with transit funding. You've been looking at some uh, big slides coming out of the TransLink uh, Count Mayor's Council, I believe it is, looking at how bad things are. How bad are things, Scott?
2: They are not great for transit in the Lower Mainland. Uh, So today was the monthly Mayor's Council meeting. uh, And a big part of that was the funding situation with TransLink. We've been hearing stories for a couple weeks now about uh, revenue shortfalls. And earlier this week, I think it was, they announced they were going to be cutting a bunch of routes. but we uh, have some numbers and... Right now, they're losing about $75 million a month uh, compared to what they budgeted for. So rather than the $140 million TransLink was expecting to take in in April, they're projecting to only get about $65 million. And that's from losing funding from across a bunch of different sources. Uh, Fares being the big one, but also things like fuel taxes have gone down quite a bit.
0: Yeah, really, the only money it looks like they're still pulling in is the property taxes, which makes sense because that's a very fixed amount. People's property hasn't suddenly up and vanished, but every other levy and revenue source they have is kind of dried up, which really highlights how, I guess, I mean, it's it's hard to say it's a fragile system um, because of how big of a shock COVID-19 and this change has been, but It's not a good situation because TransLink, it doesn't have the ability to run a massive deficit or take out a giant loan in the same way the government can. Uh, So this is a place where government's going to need to come in if they want to keep this agency running at the, if not world class, at least continent class, you know, continent leading quality it's been. There's a big hole in this budget we're talking, you know, half a billion dollars a year or more, almost two thirds of a billion. Lots and lots of money needs to come from somewhere.
2: Yeah. And that's been the challenge. So right now they're kind of help covering some of the costs by doing service cutbacks, bats as already mentioned and drawing down reserves, but that's only going to last so long. And in the meantime, senior levels of government haven't really stepped in at all. And on Monday, the premier was asked about this, and he basically passed the buck to the Fed saying, oh, we're looking into it, we're talking to them, but that doesn't really address the core need right now. And as we've talked about a bunch of times with pretty much everything the government's rolling out, this really does seem to be one of those cases where speed trumps perfection and figuring out exactly who gets to pay for it between the feds and the province just doesn't seem to matter nearly as much as getting the money out the door to TransLink so they don't have to cut more services.
0: Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with that. There's, to get a sense of the scale we're talking about, they've shown that their ridership has dropped from, you know, a baseline if it's 100 on March first, or in February, by March twenty third, it was down to twenty three percent. Just you know, one in four trips were being taken. By April sixth, they were down to seventeen percent, where they'd done a twenty percent service reduction, and they're kind of still sitting around there. And you know, when they're serving one in eight as many people as they usually would, it's not surprising that they they're going to be cutting a bunch more services and taking more buses off the roads. But, you know, if you've ever been to a city that doesn't have as good of a transit system as Vancouver, fewer buses makes you want to ride it less. And so kind of a vicious cycle. So the money's got to start flowing and it's going to take all levels stepping in. And hopefully we see that sooner than later.
2: Yeah, because transit really is an essential service. And based on the surveys that TransLink has done, a huge amount of their current ridership is people who need to use transit to access essential services, whether or not it's as workers or uh, people taking advantage of those services. And it's just hard to do physical distancing when you're cutting back routes and cutting back on the number of buses you run. This is the unfortunate situation where you just have, have To run a lot of buses at low capacity just to keep everyone spread out. So far, the service cuts have been some of the least used routes in the system where uh, there's redundancy and they can change that around a bit, but the next round of service cuts might not have that. We're talking translate because the numbers came out today. So far, I haven't seen reports from BC Transit, which covers the rest of the province, but they're probably in a similar situation. And the only other thing I just want to do is emphasize just that the province really needs to get its ass and gear on this one. And this is not the time to be playing who who gets to pay with the federal government like provinces like to do in normal times. So that's the acute problems right now. But part of the uh, long-term challenges is what happens after and TransLink's drawing down some of their revenue right now. They're, they're not having to take on some of the debt they were expecting to, just some of the uh, capital spending being put on hold temporarily. But this is going to be a, a long-term challenge. And they've outlined four different scenarios for what the after effects are going to be. It's going to have quite a range in what their shortfalls are going to be. But pro- the province also needs to be seriously thinking about what happens next and what that means for capital works that are needed because This could impact if it keeps going on and they remain with this funding gap, have to cut back on some really needed expansions that aren't just needed to get people around, but also going to be helpful for stuff like air quality, which you hear all about in the interview later in the show.
0: Good points. One of the other political footballs that it feels like everyone's kind of dodging or just hoping that the EI programs will step in on is this question around paid leave and sick leave. BC, as we've talked about before, didn't even have required or guaranteed sick leave of any sort until this crisis broke out. And one of the first bills, one of the only bills that has been passed by the BC legislature, this session really in that emergency sitting was the, you know, agreement with the BC liberals and BC greens to allow for three unpaid sick days a year, and unlimited COVID-19 unpaid leave. Well, now there's been a number of outbreaks at major industrial sites, notably two poultry processing plants here in BC and a bunch of meat plants in Alberta, and I'll go into some of those specifics, many of which seem to follow cases where people came to work sick. And the guidance has been clear. If you're sick, stay home. Employers shouldn't be requiring you to come in. But for many people, not getting a paycheck for a significant amount of time really impacts their ability to stay home. So I can understand the incentive for people to go in when they're sick, or even, you know, maybe it's just allergies kind of sick.
2: Just to be clear, the the provincial health officer has said, even if you think it's allergies, just stay home.
0: And now we have here in BC at the United Poultry Plant, 29 cases, today announced the sister plant in Coquitlam. Superior Poultry has two cases. Uh, Even more shocking is in Alberta, where Cargill Cargill meets the largest meat processing plant in Canada, or at least one of the largest. They have 480 workers now affected, one death in that plant. And in the surrounding community, there's another 140 cases that could be tied to the outbreak in that plant. That plant's been shut down. There were reports of workers really trying to raise alarms about how things were going at this plant before the full outbreak had become well known. And one of the most shocking things that I think came out was that the plant early in March, when it underwent its inspection from Alberta agriculture about are they meeting the uh, health and safety codes for COVID-19 uh, did this inspection by a video inspection, uh, Alberta Agriculture tries to defend it as an employee was directed to walk around with the video camera in the plant and look at the things they were told to look at. but it And that helps prevent the inspector from being potentially exposed. But it feels like they missed some key things in this plant. And then there's at least another couple meat plants in Alberta, most notably JBS meat plant in Brooks that has 124 cases and another death in that community. And so there's a lot of questions in BC and in Alberta about workplace safety, about making sure people stay home when they're sick, and how to ensure this.
2: Yeah, do you think with anything covering the food industry that there would already be processes in place that people... Don't work sick around
0: food. Those would be the places we want to be the most clean in the country, but I think we'd all be a little bit disappointed. I don't think they're, you know, rotting, disgusting places, but I don't think they meet the standards we'd hope they would otherwise. All of this has led John Horgan to kind of muse about this idea of paid sick leave again, and he's announced that there's going to be some more dialogue and discussion around the question here in B.C., no commitments to anything specific. Uh, He told the Vancouver Sun following a cabinet meeting this week, it's important we put in place a framework so through WorkSafeBC we can have safe workplaces and an understanding that sick pay is there not just to get extra dollars to people who are ill, but perhaps ensure those workers don't come to work because they know they're not going to forego their wages of the day. And so I think he's still hoping for industry buy-in on it, and there are definitely workplaces that are much better at this than others. But when you have gaps, that's where the law seems to be necessary. And it's been frustrating to not see him move faster on this. And I'm not sure the reasoning behind that.
2: I think it goes to more than just the law. Uh, in general, I think we haven't had a great culture around taking time off from work when sick. I mean, I've definitely, before this, had gone into work with you know colds, maybe even a flu one time and like. Not because I couldn't have taken a sick day. My work actually gives me a fair bit of flexibility on that. But just because, you know, I'd have more work to do at the end of it, it would just pile up and I'd have to work even harder afterward. And there's, And that's, I think, kind of part of the problem is that even people who have a lot of the flexibility that not everyone's lucky enough to have it's just kind of an expectation that you suffer through it and, you know, grit your teeth and push on if you're not really sick. And if there's one thing the situation shown is that that wasn't necessarily a great way to do about it. and We were on board time there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back even before work. I remember in elementary school, we had awards for perfect attendance records and expecting elementary age kids to be there every day is really weird when you start to think about it. Like kids are sick all of the time. They have doctors and dentists and all these other things they need to go to. Like, yeah, you shouldn't be skipping a lot of school, but missing a class or missing a day here or there isn't a bad thing. (laughs) And trying to reward not missing creates a weird incentive and it's it's a sort of Protestant work ethic that kind of pervades everything that I think we really do need to rethink. You know, I think the law is a very helpful way to push societal change and also flow with it. But yeah, people need to rethink the approach to work.
2: Yeah, you, you do need some sort of backstop here. And there are challenges with how you structure it because a lot of the places that have workers who are the most exposed and most vulnerable and interact with the public the most are also small businesses that don't really have a large reservoir of capital or money they can set aside to pay people when they don't show up to work for several days because they're feeling sick. So how this gets structured is going to be a tough thing to do going forward. And there's a sick leave part of the EI program, but that only kicks in after a week. And it's really kind of structured around long term illness rather than, oh, you have to miss four days of work in a row because you have the flu.
0: And trust me, trying to get money back from EI right now for anything other than COVID leave is going to be a joke. I took two weeks off for caregiver leave recently And I've applied for that, and I expect to see that money maybe in June, if I'm lucky. Things are just going to be slow for a while. And yeah, EI is not a great system. There's also a political angle of it as well, where the BC Liberals would traditionally have been much more skeptical of a broad, mandatory sick leave policy, paid sick leave policy. And right now, the BC NDP really needs unanimous consent to get any new legislation through the legislature uh if they don't the liberals can just throw all their members in the house and shut down a bill so making sure all three parties are on the same page means that no one pulls any tricks Uh, i don't know what the bc liberals position on this is i don't know what the bc greens position is i don't even know what the bc ndp's position on this is but i hope they can all find some way to move forward constructively to make sure we're protecting workers, protecting our community, and, you know, doing what's being asked of us without causing additional unnecessary hardship.
2: I also haven't heard from the BC Liberals on what their view on sick leave is with respect to their current situation, but I would imagine they would voice the same concerns I just did about the impact on small businesses, particularly the small businesses that are really struggling at the moment And adding this additional financial requirements is going to be really tough on a lot of businesses, even absent a big economic disruption. So don't know how it's all going to shake out, but I expect that is going to be a sticking point. And it's a fair one.
0: Maybe it's somewhere where the BC government throws a whole bunch of money at the problem again, at least in the short term. So once we're back to normal days, we can think it through a bit more. But in the short term, people cannot be going to work sick.
2: Yep, stay home.
0: Well, now, last Friday, Scott, you had the chance to interview UBC School of Public Health Professor Michael Brower on air pollution and COVID-19. Uh, patrons will have listened, had a chance to listen to this episode earlier. So if you want patrons, you can either listen to it again, or you could probably hit stop now. Uh, if you're not a patron, you can sometimes get early access to stuff at patreon.com slash politicoast. But otherwise, let's throw it over to that interview now.
2: Joining me today is Professor Michael Brouwer from the UBC School of Public Health. Uh, welcome, Professor Brouwer. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, so I wanted to bring you on today to discuss uh, air pollution and its public health impacts and what we know about it and how it interacts with the coronavirus. But uh, before we get into that, could you just give our listeners a brief introduction of yourself and the uh, research you do?
1: yeah so my name is Michael Brower. I'm a professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia, and I study the links between our environment and uh, pollution in the environment specifically and how it affects health, especially health of a population so I'm not really studying what happens uh, to an individual, but how um, changes in our environment, uh, whether it's more or less polluted, how that affects sort of large, uh, large populations. And in this case, uh, we're talking today about the, the health impacts of air pollution. Air pollution is um, the most important impact or, or, or pollutant in the
2: environment uh, in terms of the impacts on human health. Okay, well, uh, let's jump right in then. Uh, so what are kind of the main impacts of air pollution on human health?
1: So air pollution affects uh, human health in in a number of ways, but really to get down to the, the ultimate impacts, we know that um, around the world every year, um, we're, we estimate that somewhere around 4 million uh, deaths can be attributable to air pollution. So this is, these are deaths from lung disease, um, chronic lung disease, especially as well as heart disease. And we're seeing actually even uh, other kinds of diseases that one might not ordinarily think of being affected by something that you breathe, also being impacted um, by air pollution. Now we can't ever decide if any particular death is an air pollution death or not air pollution death so we look at it as a, as a risk factor that contributes um, to worsening of, of diseases so these numbers are really statistical estimates um, but they've been backed by now hundreds of studies done everywhere around the world so they're um, they're sort of our understanding of the impacts of air pollution. And what's happening is that uh, we breathe in this pollution. Obviously it, it does affect our lungs and, but one of the ways that it affects us is that our body actually tries to fight this as though it were something like a virus or a bacterial infection. And because air pollution isn't something that our body has an immune system that's, that's been uh, designed to fight, our, our body keeps trying to fight it. And it's actually this this response of our body um that then sort of starts to affect actually other organ systems. So that's why something like air pollution, uh, we see effects on the heart. We see effects on the kidneys. We see effects, for example, on people with type two diabetes. Uh, And again, it's just this response that that sort of keeps going on because we can't actually fight the air pollution that, that we, uh, we continue to breathe.
2: Uh, Right. And I, I gather there's also been impacts on, um, People's mental faculties. I think there was a study a little while ago about um, schools that were downwind of uh, major roadways and highways having uh, lower test scores.
1: Yeah, we're starting to see um, impacts, uh, you know, even beyond the hearts and the heart and the lung. Uh, so we we see things. Uh, for example, we we've, we've done some recent work looking at uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and we start to see. Uh, links there perhaps also the, the other kinds of effects on cognitive development in children there have been some studies um, suggesting that Another impact that, that we have quite a lot of information on is um, is impacts on, on pregnancies. Uh, so we actually see lower um, birth weight babies in areas of higher air pollution we see more premature, uh, prematurely born babies in areas of, of higher air pollution. Um, so all, so it, it, it seems as though the more we look at this, um, there's really not uh, many, many organ systems on many parts of the body that, um, can't somehow be affected by air pollution. And then that's, that's sort of consistent with this idea that basically air pollution is producing this chronic response. It's chronic inflammation, uh, which really then affects uh, the whole body. Um, and that's what, what gives uh, these, these quite dramatic uh, impacts uh, and, and some of these, these very large numbers. Also, just the fact that heart and lung disease are, are major killers in, in uh, most parts of the world. So if air pollution has any contribution to those, uh, as we know it does, then we get the, these quite large numbers.
2: Right. Um, so my kind of...
1: And I should, I should add, actually, yeah, I should add just in, in Canada specifically... Um, so Health Canada estimates every year about 14,000 deaths attributable to air pollution. And, and that's really quite remarkable, given that Canada is a country with some of the cleanest air uh, in the world. So we have levels that are a tenth or lower than levels uh, seen in some of the, the more highly polluted countries uh, of the world. But again, even in Canada, we see some 14,000 deaths every year in, in British Columbia, uh estimates of, of around uh, 1,500 deaths every year just uh, just in, in British Columbia.
2: Right. That sounds quite impactful. Um, there's also going to be, because of the health effects and what, a bunch of economic impacts, do we have a rough idea what air pollution costs society in general?
1: Yeah. Um, so we actually did a report with the World Bank several years ago, looking at it from a global perspective. And the numbers are, are absolutely astounding, $5 trillion dollars. Uh, every year in in yeah. terms of uh, economic impacts this is due both to the, the health impacts so uh, essentially shortening of lives or, or lowering of uh, uh, people's ability to have actually economically productive lives but also in addition the the cost due to lost productivity of people who are still still alive and, and working so we have a number of studies showing that Um, For example, agricultural workers or uh, manufacturing workers who are exposed to higher levels of air pollution, they're actually less efficient, less productive. Um, So that's, uh, so yeah, $5 trillion globally. And then uh, the estimates in Canada are, uh, again, every year, um, $114 billion dollars. Um, mostly due to the the health impacts. And in BC, somewhere around $11 billion every year are the economic impacts um, uh,
2: due to to air pollution. Large. I'm actually a little surprised to hear just how big that is. So it sounds like it's a situation where there's really significant impacts and it makes a lot of sense to try and combat this just because, not only for general health reasons, but as a society, it's costing us a lot. And we'll, we'll get into some of the uh, policy recommendations on that towards the end, but is, is that generally correct?
1: Yeah. And I, I guess the other side of this is that um, we, if we actually reduce air pollution, Unlike many other things that we can change in terms of things that have economic impacts or have health impacts, if we actually reduce air pollution, uh, we everybody gets this benefit. So we actually get this this benefit sort of across uh, society. We don't have to actually uh, worry about you know are we targeting uh, some program, let's say, to some segment of the population. Um, these these impacts um, are felt across in the entire society. And so, by reducing air pollution by some by regulation or via technology change, um, we kind of immediately get that that benefit. Um, so the that that's sort of the the positive side of, of air pollution: the, the fact that it um, that everybody can actually get this benefit. We don't have to worry about actually how to roll out or how how to actually target um, an improvement to the people that that need it most.
2: Right. It, it really is a, clean air. Really is a public good here. more less than one uh well let's move on to before we move on to uh covid 19 and air pollution is there any particular source of air pollution that are more harmful than others what are the ones that are really causing a lot of problems
1: so in in terms of sources in general um the, the sources that are produced by combustion, so whenever we're burning something, are more harmful than, than other sources of, of pollution. Now, that, that is not going to surprise most people. But it is important to recognize that there are sources um, such as dust storms, even uh, actually sea sprays. So actually just the wave action produces uh, these small particles. We have lightning that actually um, leads to um air pollution. So we do have a number of sort of natural sources um, or things like like dust storms, which uh, you could consider natural or or also have a a human influence on them. Those are harmful. So we know, um, for example, in the interior of BC, every uh, spring after the snow is melted, we've laid down, for example, a lot of traction material onto roads. And when the snow melts and things dry up, we get some winds in the springtime, we get these big dust events, and we actually know that that is quite harmful. But anytime we're, we're getting pollution from burning, whether that's a fireplace, whether that's, uh, you know, burning coal in in a power plant, uh, whether that's a wildfire, um, that seems to be um, more, more harmful uh, types of, of pollution.
2: A lot of the literature and... Uh, media coverage of air pollution talks about the uh,
1: 2.5 right PM 2.5 PM 2.5, yeah, these are these small particles, um, and they're smaller than 2.5 micrometers in diameter so just to put that in perspective, a human hair has a diameter of about a hundred micrometers in diameter. Um, so these are much much smaller than just the diameter of a human hair. We can't see these particles. Um, there are millions of them in the air. We actually each one of us breathes in and out millions of these particles every day. They can remain suspended in the air for for uh, even up to several weeks. So, for example, if we have uh, large wildfires, uh, whether it's in British Columbia or northern Canada, there's evidence that that smoke and that actually these small particles <clears throat> is what's in that smoke can affect air quality and even affect health in places as far away as um, as the southern U.S. or even the the, the eastern uh, U.S. So, um, so those particles are are our greatest concern from a health perspective. Um, and for a number of reasons, one is, as I just mentioned, that they they remain in the air for such a long period of time. They're also very small, uh, meaning that they basically can avoid some of our lungs defense mechanisms and reach down into the very, very sensitive parts of our airways. Um, and, and actually causing inflammation in, in very sensitive parts of, of, uh, of our, our lungs.
2: Well, let's move on to the COVID-19 pandemic and how air pollution interacts with that. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, which is the cause of the COVID-19 uh, disease, uh, is primarily a respiratory virus that attacks the, the lungs and the rest of the respiratory system. and Acknowledging here that the science is very much rapidly developing, what do we know about how uh, exposure to air pollution can increase risks from
1: COVID-19? Right. So air pollution and and respiratory infections is a link that we've actually known about for, for quite some time. So respiratory infections like, uh, like influenza that we see every year, um... Even things like middle ear infections, so earaches that are very common in young children, those actually start out as respiratory infections. And we know that if you have one of these infections, so air pollution is not causing the infection, but if you have one of these infections and then you're also exposed to high levels of air pollution, it makes it more difficult for your body's um, defense system your your immune system to actually fight the the infection so that infection becomes uh, more severe so the ear the ear infection is a really good example so that starts out as what we call an upper respiratory infection and can progress to uh, affect the ears in a number of ways but one way is the fact that air pollution uh, uh, retards your body's ability to fight that infection so now you have this infection that. Progresses to other uh, other parts uh, of your body, and we started to see some evidence of the same kind of interactions um, with with COVID nineteen. Um, also, from the earlier SARS um, uh, outbreak, uh, which is quite a similar virus, um, there was some evidence that um, on days uh, of higher air pollution, people were um, had double the risk of dying compared of, of SARS compared to um, days of lower uh, air pollution. And there was uh, a recent um, sort of uh, preliminary results coming out of an analysis for COVID-19 from the US that suggested that the areas of the US that had like higher levels of air pollution, um, people were more likely to die um, from COVID-19 than um, in places um, that had lower levels of air pollution. So all of that's quite consistent now. Uh, again, the science is evolving, and it's very early uh, days to really be conclusive about this. But it is it is very consistent with what we know about how air pollution interacts with respiratory infections in general. And again, the idea is that it makes those uh, infections more severe. The, the, the whole idea behind us... Um, uh, staying home, all of the lockdowns, for example, is its not that people... Uh, so there's two issues here. One is that, that people are less likely to get infected, but also that um, that um, the people who get infected, we want to keep those infections so people aren't uh, impacting our healthcare system. Uh, and air pollution is something that could take somebody who's already affected make that infection more severe so that they actually do need uh, to seek medical attention and have that impact uh, on, on the healthcare system. So that's why it's actually a really important uh, important factor here.
2: Has the desire to keep air pollution down to minimize those impacts been part of the explicit policymaking around the lockdown, or is this just kind of a, a beneficial side effect?
1: So in... in... Um, locally it, it has been and, and I think actually in in BC we were sort of one of the first uh, places in the world to actually make this link and actually get it into policy uh, and this resulted from just what's happening actually at this time of the year so in many many parts of the world um, uh, springtime actually is a period of, of, of quite good air quality uh, in BC we have a number of situations where um, in, in some parts of the province actually it's, it's a period of, of rather poor air quality um, so quite early on in in the pandemic uh, we were hearing from our air quality agencies ministry of environment as well as local uh, uh, airshed um, planning groups that uh, for example they were seeing, as is typical this time of year, a lot of slash burning, sub-burning of agricultural uh, debris or or forestry debris. Um, And... um were concerned about the, the impacts, again, because we we're, were in the midst of a, of a pandemic, uh, which affects the respiratory uh, system. So quite early on, we actually uh, were able in BC to implement a, a restrictions on, on open burning. And I believe now, um, there's now a complete ban on, on open burning throughout the, the entire province. And we're also gearing up towards uh, thinking about, we're getting into wildfire season here, and we've already had a few fires uh, in BC, um, fires also in, in Alberta, and that's really our most important air quality issue um, in this part of the country. And so that's a great concern. So there's there's not a whole lot we can do about um, controlling wildfires once, uh, once they exist, but we really want to be, uh, Extremely vigilant this year about um, about uh, starting fires if they're if they're going to be human caused. So thinking about, for example, um, continuing bans on on uh, campfires or extending uh, those for for example throughout the whole season uh, is something that that uh, is, has been discussed and I, and I believe is being implemented
2: as well. Right. And they uh, closed a bunch of provincial parks over the Easter weekend. Is that something that you'd expect the policy will likely continue on through the summer, both to prevent transmission of disease and to minimize any chance the camper started fires? I,
1: I well, I would, I think the, the park closures are are more from just the, the physical distancing uh, as well as sort of impacts on, on employees and things like that. But um We've continued to sort of raise the issue of perhaps this is a summer when we just shouldn't allow, um, if people are camping and using parks, we just shouldn't allow fires um, in them, as we, we, we always tend to get to a point in the summer when we do ban fires uh, throughout most of the province, and maybe this is the summer when we just do that um, uh, throughout the, the, the entire season just because of this added, um, added risk here.
2: I've seen some reports that suggest that the lockdown in China is actually going to have a bigger overall impact on health there uh, because of the reduced deaths from air pollution than just stopping the virus would. Um, Based on what we know now, what are going to be the impacts of shutting down so much human activity? And uh, do we have Canada specific projections on that?
1: So I'm not aware of any, any Canada specific projections on that. And, um, as I mentioned earlier, Canada is in terms of air quality, it is extremely clean. Uh, having said that, we do know that, uh, that we we still see substantial impacts of of air quality, even at the, the lower levels that we see in Canada, uh, on human health. Um, and, you know, we, of course, we'd never want to trade um, pandemic deaths for for air pollution uh, uh, related deaths. Um, but just given the the numbers that we estimate, um, certainly, if, if we're talking four million deaths per year, and we decrease air quality um, even over one to two months, three months, um, and in some places this is down by you know fifty percent. Um, the, the numbers will be more than than the impacts uh, of, of the pandemic uh, itself, but I don't I don't really think that's you know that's not really the appropriate way to look at this. I think the the, the these are both issues, um, and it it is a reminder that even while we're in the midst of a pandemic, which is horrible and tragic, um, we do have these sort of ongoing issues, um, which. We may get slight reprieves from them, but uh, they've been going on for years and will continue to go on for years and do have really huge impacts on the health of populations, both in Canada, um, but also elsewhere around the world. Um, the Probably the more important question is what happens when we start to emerge uh, from the current situation where we've really got... Um, uh, you know, shutdowns of, of major sectors of the economy, do we go right back to the way it was before? Um, and there's some evidence that even though China saw these improvements of air quality, as they started to ramp up their economy, um, things are going back to similar to how they were uh, before. Or do we actually take this as an opportunity to um, the, the United Nations has been using the phrase build back better do we actually uh, use this as an opportunity to take action on some of these longer standing issues? Um, if we're going to be thinking about having to restructure our economy just because of the the economic impacts, um, but also considering, for example, virus transmission, can we, can we do this in a way that uh, where we also lessen the, the uh, impacts on the environment? Um, And another aspect of that is it's been quite interesting that um, in many parts of the world, people have now seen, visually seen, um, what clean air looks like. Uh, It's very easy to get used to um, sort of subpar air quality. You may not really notice it if that's the way it's been your whole life. Um, but now all of a sudden you see these amazing blue skies that many parts of the world and even, even parts of Canada may not be used to seeing. And, um, we've seen some evidence from, um, both anecdotally, but also from, from some small surveys that people really like this, um, and they really appreciate it. And, um, so there's an opportunity here to capitalize on uh, this experience and, um, try and actually deal with uh, what has been a longstanding issue.
2: Well, uh, let's dig into that a bit. Uh, After the pandemic draws to a close and the social distancing and physical distancing gets eased off, there's also going to be a lot of economic and societal recovery that's going to need to happen and we're likely to see a, a fairly large package from multiple levels of government be put out there to address to try and get society and the economy restarted, how would you recommend we use that to minimize uh, air pollution going forward?
1: So, yeah, in terms of air pollution, and I think we also need to think about the transition that we need to make to uh, net zero carbon uh, economy as, as well, um, we should be asking those questions about you know every dollar that we're spending. Um, is it going to, uh, can we spend that dollar in a way and making sure that this isn't going to, um, lead to air pollution? This isn't going to lead to an increase in, in emissions, uh, related to climate change. Um, and we, we certainly have the technologies, we have the, the solutions to actually, let society function uh, and and let our economies function in a way that is much less damaging to the environment. Um, and so I think it's really asking those questions, not just saying, you know, here's the money, spend it however you want, get back to normal. Um, so what what might that mean? That might that would mean prioritizing. Um, uh, you know, clean energy that would mean prioritizing, and, and it's very complicated to think about how we're going to do this in a safe way. But let's say prioritizing public transit as opposed to uh, to, to private vehicles, um, prioritizing. Uh, efficiencies in uh, in industrial processes that reduce their, their energy needs or allow them to, to use alternative energy sources. Um, lots of things like that are, you know, it, it, it's going to be the devil in the details, but I think it's really just actually having this sort of checklist and saying, um, you know, any dollar we spend it should not be also, it should not be having negative impacts um, on, on the environment. And then there's also other things that, that have for a long time been been sort of low hanging fruit. One of the interesting things that, um, that I noticed in the first days of, um, of the, the sort of lockdown periods was that many people were staying home and, um, and they would light up a fireplace um, because, well, that's what you do when you're stuck at home. And that's really just for sort of ambiance. Um, uh, most people, uh, especially in, in our metropolitan areas, in our in our cities, in Canada, that's not a primary heating source. Um, and that's actually a huge source of air pollution um, in, in our cities. So, for example, in metro Vancouver, um, that's probably the leading uh, source of these uh, very, very small particles. Really? More so than... Actually-
2: more than cars? Um, more than yeah, more huh. than
1: more than cars, and that's because our our cars today are are so much cleaner than they were, uh, uh, you know, even ten years ago, let alone thirty years ago. We've we've had huge improvements in the, in the technology from our motor vehicles. So while they still are a source of, of air pollution, and they're certainly uh, a very important source for uh, emissions related climate change. Um, in contrast to something like a fireplace, um, a fireplace today is really no different than a fireplace was 500 years ago. So we really haven't done much to, to improve that technology. And it's also something that you know, while it's nice, we don't really need it. So the idea that we're we're sort of burning wood, creating this pollution in our major cities, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's now it's time to really think about you know, should that be allowed um, at all? Uh, obviously, in a remote area, in a cabin um, where you're not in a densely populated area, um, you know that that's an individual choice uh, to make. But in a city where you're, where one fireplace can affect hundreds of people in in the vicinity, perhaps now's the time to to think about those kinds of sources. Which really, there's no, I would say, no cost um, to uh, to basically not allowing that that uh, kind of pollution right and and again maybe taking this experience that um where we just have this
2: idea of you know uh how good air quality can be um when when we sort of uh change our, our way of life um you know as as an example so i, I believe mo- new buildings can't have fireplaces but uh this would more be a policy of Prohibiting their use in existing older buildings, correct? Yeah,
1: that that that's correct, and and for a number of reasons, sort of newer buildings, sort of wood-burning fireplaces, just from the fire hazard, um, and and actually um, insurers often won't uh, won't actually insure a building with a with a wood-burning fireplace uh, now in a, in a um, so. So, right, this would be the, you know, the tens of thousands of, of older um, homes and buildings that have uh, wood burning fireplaces and, and are used. And, um, and then also, again, things like, like I mentioned earlier, like open burning. Um, we, um, you know, have regulations about that, but perhaps they need, so this is open burning of, of agricultural waste or, or forestry debris. Uh, we do have regulations, but perhaps they're they're going to, uh, you know, they could be tightened uh, as well. Again, just thinking about the, the contribution that they make to, um, to poor
2: air quality. So what role do the different levels of government have with respect to uh, improving air quality? We, we've already talked a bit about uh, prohibiting burning within cities, but there's also issues around where housing gets located near major roadways. Um, but also there's provincial and federal roles. Do you kind of go into what the different levels of government have with respect to, or do you go into the different responsibilities the different levels of government have with respect to air pollution problems?
1: Sure. In, in terms of responsibility, most of the responsibility is, is uh, at the provincial level. Uh, in some cases, the province will delegate that to uh, other agencies. So, for example, in Metro Vancouver, um, the province has delegated uh, air quality to, to Metro Vancouver or what used to be called the Greater Vancouver Regional District. Um, and uh, so, and that's sort of typical across uh, most of the country that, that things are done at the provincial level. In B.C., what tends to happen is uh, the province will tend to set up sort of uh, airshed management groups, uh, which are a combination of uh, basically provincial um, uh, oversight, but working together with local stakeholders. So that would mean uh, both local government, but also uh, citizen groups, and, uh, for example, the economic sectors that are that are important in, in a particular region. Um, Federal jurisdiction uh, focuses on things like um, uh, requirements for motor vehicles, um, so that we have a uniform standard uh, across the country. Um, we also do have um, federal air quality guidelines, but often the the, the provinces will actually exceed um, uh, those those air quality uh, standards. Um, so. Um, but then you also get into sort of interesting issues like federal lands that are located uh, in areas. So, for example, the port um, and, and port authorities are that's federal land. And, and those actually tend to uh, have sources of air pollution. Uh, so those you have to work together with the local authorities, even though they are sort of under under federal um, uh, regulation so it, it can become quite uh, quite complex but in general most of the action is uh, undertaken at the provincial
2: level right and uh with respect to the port the a lot of the ships burn uh, bunker fuel which is basically the, the lowest rate of fuel possible so they have a particularly outsized role in uh, air pollution correct
1: um in in north america actually for several years now we've had um Fuel quality restrictions uh, as as uh, in port and actually close to the coasts. Um, certainly, in in the open seas, it's absolutely correct that you can you can still burn um, much lower quality fuel. Um, but um, that and that has been a, a federal action, um, and so actually there there's been quite a bit of improvement in the impact of that marine sector, uh, close to, close to populated areas. So in port, as well as when they're close, um, close to coast, uh, to coastline. So there, that's been a, actually a source of progress in the last few years. Um, but ports are also a, um, a major destination, for example, for truck traffic. Um, so, um, uh, it's not just the marine vessels themselves, but also all that activity um, that goes on at, at port land. Lots of, again, trucks moving containers, for example, or other equipment that's that's moving containers, that kind of thing as well. So it does tend to be um, an important source in, in, in uh, cities that have ports.
2: Uh, near the start of this, you just mentioned how large the overall costs are to the uh, society and the economy in general. Do you have a rough estimate of what the cost-benefit is going to be? And I know it's going to depend a bit on each intervention of tackling air pollution. Yeah, it, I, so it, it, it does depend. But, um,
1: the sort of best examples that we have um, have been up until recently in the U.S. Uh, They're actually required for every federal regulation to do a cost-benefit um, assessment. And every year that they did this, um, air quality regulations uh, were the most costly of all federal regulations, but also were the ones with the greatest benefit to cost ratio. And that ratio, depending on the regulation, uh, was anywhere from sort of a four to one ratio to a 30 to one ratio. So every dollar you spend, you get $30 back um, in benefits, Uh, again. Because of these uh, large impacts on uh, on health, uh, so um, for the most part, every air quality regulation that is contemplated um, is is um, beneficial, and it's highly beneficial from a, a benefit cost um, assessment. And um, it's a little bit more complicated in in places like uh, BC, because our air quality is quite good. Um, So we've already, for the most part, dealt with sort of the low-hanging fruit, um, the things that are easiest and least expensive uh, to deal with. So we are getting into places where we're we're more at that three-to-one, four-to-one ratio, but we're still quite positive from a benefit-to-cost perspective.
2: Right. So we should still be trying to put quite a bit of resources into this during the uh, kind of recovery and rebuilding effort, just because th- the impacts are so large, yeah absolutely, and again as as uh you know I, I
1: stated earlier um that's sort of one of the the beautiful things about improving air quality is sort of if you do it, you get this benefit kind of across the board across the society, which is quite different than saying uh something like um even, even something like smoking, tobacco smoking, for example, we know that's also quite harmful and quite costly from a, a health perspective, but how are we actually going to implement that? Um, we, we, we have to really target things to specific individuals, specific groups. We sort of have to say, all right, who are we going to identify who's smoking, who's at risk from smoking, what programs are we going to implement uh, to make uh, to, to help people stop
2: smoking, all of that kind of thing. Whereas air pollution, you just clean the air, everybody's breathing, you get that, you sort of get that that uh, benefit right away, uh, and again, very equitably uh, as well. Right. So I, I've sometimes seen uh, EV rebates being criticized as uh, kind of giveaways to wealthier people who are generally the people who can afford, you know, Teslas and other more expensive electric vehicles. But because of this, and how widespread the impacts are going to be it actually is more equitable than it seems on just the initial face of it.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, there is, there, there still are issues with, uh, you know, uh, could the people who are buying Teslas just buy them or would they buy them anyways? And should they buy, they should be buying them anyways if they can afford them making that choice. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, there, there sort of are issues, but, but the, the fact is that if they're driving that that uh, vehicle compared to a vehicle that's uh, creating more pollution or um, creating more emissions related to climate change, um, there will be a, a larger societal uh, benefit um, from that. So uh, I guess two sides to that coin still.
2: Right. There, there's some definitely some tweets that could probably still be made, but it's not necessarily as right. inequitable as it seems on its face probably where it comes out to um i just one final question before i let you go on. um this kind of circling back a little bit to the general population level stuff but do we have a idea of what the sociological impacts of air pollution are and which groups uh bear the largest impact uh in general and as well as the interaction of the virus and air pollution
1: so in in general um we, we certainly know that the, the people in terms of, of health impacts are people with um, pre-existing diseases. So even though air pollution causes some of the diseases, there are also many other causes. Um, so this tends to be, um, you know, the, the uh, older segments of the population, you um, uh, as well as the very young, so we're concerned. We're especially concerned with with pregnant women and and young infants. Um, now, that's just that's sort of very general from an age perspective. Thinking about it from um, where people live, um, and uh, we know uh, in Canada, but also elsewhere around the world, that um, people of um, lower socioeconomic, uh, levels. So people, uh, generally with, with lower incomes, lower levels of education, um, tend to bear the brunt, more of the brunt of air pollution, um, due to a number of factors uh, where they can afford to live. Um, and, um, so for example, we've done lots of work, uh, locally on, on uh, sort of transportation related air pollution and we know that people who live close to major roads um, and in areas that are more densely uh, uh, trafficked um, they have a much higher impact of air pollution than people who live um, farther away from those roads we know that people who tend to live in sort of lower lying areas compared to sort of up slope tend to get Uh, higher levels of uh, air pollution and and are are more affected and and all those sort of have have economic links. So who are those people? It tends to be people who um, uh, have have lower, uh, lower incomes. Um, So And this is even more extreme Uh, if if you go to the U.S. It's not just an economic issue. It's actually a racial issue. So there's longstanding sort of segregation of cities uh, in the U.S. uh, based on race. Um, So even if you account for incomes uh, in in the U.S., uh, ethnic uh, minorities, so so African Americans and Hispanics uh, tend to actually live in areas with higher levels of air pollution and bear the brunt of that. And in, and in Canada, we, we see some of that um, in, our, in some of our First Nations uh, communities as well. So they're, um, for example, still using diesel generators um, to provide power um, because they've never been connected to the the power grid and, and actually don't have access to um some of our cleaner uh, uh sources of power and to some extent the same thing happens in in our metropolitan areas that that are um uh both um some recent immigrant groups and and first nations tend to live in areas with higher levels of air pollution
2: uh before i let you go is there anything else you uh, feel we've missed or should discuss
1: um no i think uh just to add sort of locally, um, I, I mentioned this earlier, but um, our major concern from an air quality perspective, uh, especially this time of year, are wildfires. And so it's uh, it's just important from a, a planning perspective uh, to, to think about uh, quite likely that this pandemic is going to be continuing as we move into wildfire season. Um, this interaction between air pollution and, um, and COVID-19, uh, this, this could uh, rear its ugly head if we get a wildfire smoke event that starts to affect um, uh, large populated areas, um, such as the Lower Mainland, as, as we've had um, in some previous summers. So now is really the time to prepare and plan for that and a whole host of things uh, which which understandably are going to be difficult to do in the middle of a pandemic, but a whole host of things that that, uh, that we and people individually um, should be thinking about. And that means sort of people who um, have pre-existing heart and lung disease, uh, really making sure that their disease is as well managed as it can be so that they have uh, enough medication. Um We've had some discussions about long-term care facilities, which which we know have been sort of the heart of the the COVID nineteen um, situation in in Canada in general. Um, are do they have, for example, high enough uh, air filtration so that if there is a smoke event, they can uh, filter the air? So and again, now's the time to be thinking about um, looking at their um, their uh, uh, ventilation systems and making sure they're uh, they're as they're working as well as they can and they have appropriate filtration um, individuals who know they're sensitive to air pollution and may also be yeah, among those groups that are perhaps uh, at greatest risk from COVID-19 thinking about purchasing home air cleaners. Um, stores making sure they have enough supply of air cleaners, all of these kinds of things. Um, we should be thinking about those things now um, before it's, uh, before we have an event upon us.
2: Okay. Well, uh, if our listeners are interested in finding out more, do you have a, any recommendations where they can uh, look or and as well as uh, where they can find your work?
1: Yeah, a few good places to look are, um, so the BCCDC, the British Columbia Center for Disease Control, has a number of fact sheets um, on um, air pollution, wildfires and air pollution, uh, and a number of the issues um, that that we've discussed. Also, the British Columbia Lung Association um, uh, has a wealth of resources, including, um, we have lots of short videos that have been prepared over a number of years on all kinds of aspects um, of of air pollution. And then for air quality levels, um, Metro Vancouver, um, the the measurements of air quality that are done 24-7, that's all available easily online um, through Metro Vancouver or um, through
2: the the province. Um, Just look for Air Quality uh, BC. Dr. Brower, thank you for uh, joining me today my pleasure and that has been play Coast. find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash our intro music credit is beautiful british columbia by Serge Plotnikov. play Coast is a production of legend boot media and editing services are provided by chly 101.7 fm in nanaimo wash your hands and stay home thanks for listening